My dad said, you know, preachers don't make very much money. I said, I don't guess that's really important to me. And my mother says, you know, you'll never be good enough. I said, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with a new friend of mine just in the last year or so, the Reverend Keith Couples. Thank you, Reverend Couples, for making time to come in. You're welcome, Brother Steve. It's a privilege to be invited and it's a privilege to be talking about such wonderful things with you today. Radio studios are not a new thing for you. You actually graduated with the Bachelor's in Fine Arts studying radio and TV. That is correct. And then got a Master's of Theology at SMU in Dallas. That is correct. I guess what I should ask you very first, we'll get into what took you into ministry later, but what was the faith situation of the home you grew up in? Was it a big deal, low-key, non-existent? What was it? Faith was very important. Matter of fact, I attended church for the first time when I was two weeks old. In the, United, <laughs> in the Then the Methodist tradition, now in the United Methodist tradition, children or infants are baptized, and I was baptized on the third week of my life and been attending church ever since. At one time, blessed with good health over the years, never missed a Sunday until I graduated from high school. Then, regretfully, I managed to miss quite a few. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me what you thought about God. Did you have experiences uh, as a child that really confirmed that faith? Well, the answer to the question is yes. Mm. We were always questioning. We always had the privilege of reading the scriptures. Reading and reading the scriptures and interpreting the scriptures, we always were taught to respect those who had greater understanding than we. Both my grandmothers were strong in the church. My grandmother Couples was a Methodist, and my grandmother Newman was closer to the Bible church, the Pentecostal side of Christianity. So, interesting conversations how they interpreted the scripture, and sometimes very close and sometimes very divergent. And then uh, as we grew up, went to Sunday school, the youth fellowships, et cetera, et cetera, wonderful pastors that came in, wonderful teachers. Like many of my colleagues, I was interested and yet not quite. It was just religion after all. So an interesting experience, what really turned me around was I was a sophomore in high school. I was about to be 16 years old. And we were having a youth activities week at the Munger Place United Methodist Church in Dallas, Texas. Of course, back then it was still just the Methodist Church. The reason I call that attention is in 1968, the Methodists and the Evangelical United Brethren united to form the United Methodist Church. They're one and the same. Just one passes out and another, another title comes along. And I was attending Youth Week, and the person who was coming, who was a resource person, the pastor, I have no idea what his name was. We were all get together, and he singled me out. I was the president of the sophomore, MYF portion, and singling me out instead of anyone else, that was, hey, that's a pretty big thrill. And he said something similar, like, uh, I understand you're a pretty good athlete. Yes, sir, I, I am. He says, how much time would you say that you, you spent being a good athlete? And I, uh, a couple hours a day, maybe, but never really thought about it. You just came in from a workout. So that's why you're a little late today. Yeah, yeah. Boy, this is really cool. <laughs> Uh, 
feeding my ego because I was wonderfully and terribly insecure. So he says, well, I heard you make pretty good grades. I said, well, that's that's true. He says, how often would you say, how much time would you say you spent on your studies? I don't know, a couple of hours during school. Yeah, okay, cool. Uh, so, uh, and you're the president of the uh, sophomore MYF? Yes, yes, MYF Methodist Youth Fellowship. He says, how much time would you say you spent with God? I want to tell you, Steve, I flat out lied to him. I said, 30 minutes, <laughs> maybe in a month. <laughs> and he said, since God is obviously important to you, how come you spend less time with God than you do with your academics and athletics? Now, that caused me to think, mm. and I thought about it all week long. And at the end of that week, we had a prayer chapel. I went in. I'm sitting there for about 15 minutes, and I said, okay, I've spent enough time here. I get up to go, and I decided that I probably ought to at least go up and pray. I don't have an out down, and it was just a moment. And I said, God, I don't have a clue if you're even real. I've believed in you all my life. I don't have a clue. But I want to tell you, I've not given you my best, and I give my life to you, and I will give you my best, and I look forward to what's going to happen, something like that. Now, Steve, there Were you surprised that you said those words? No, I was just being honest. Mm. There wasn't anybody else in the chapel, so I could be honest. Mm. And so this vision of being in church every Sunday, learning enough to kind of quote the Bible and give these standard answers, it was real, but it was also charade because I just hadn't made the commitment. Mm. I'd made the commitment to being an athlete and doing well in school. I had to do well in school or I couldn't be an athlete. And I was hoping to win a college scholarship, which I did. But this was something else. That question just burned in me. Why have I not committed if this is important? Mm. And so I made that commitment. As I said a moment ago, the earth did not move. I did not feel or hear any lightning or thunder. But something was different. It's the same way of making any sense. We're going. And we don't look back. We look forward. And something was different. That happened to be, that was a Friday, and it happened to be July the 24th, 1964, because it was my birthday, easy to remember. <clears throat> and over the next two years, God says, okay. He took me at my word and started preparing me to receive a call. And the call was not to be an electrical engineer and go into business with my dad and his company. The call was to serve the fullness of God. And that's to be a minister. And so I answered that call on July the 24th, 1966, my 18th birthday, and never looked back. As you've talked with other reverends or pastors, is that unusual to know that early what that call was going to be? Great question. The answer is yes and no. It is early. And yet some had received that call earlier. And some received it later. So we start talking, well, why did you get it so early and why did I get it so late? Don't know. Finally, don't much care. Either the call was coming and we weren't answering the phone <laughs> or, the, or, the, or God was just saying, this is the time. In Greek, there are two words for time that I'm aware of, chronos and kairos. Chronos, chronology. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one, two, three, four. That's just orderly living. Kairos means in the fullness of time. 
and it's the fullness of God's time. So as God orders the days of creation, one, two, three, four, five, six, rests on the seventh, that makes sense. So does God have a plan on July the 24th? I'm going to make the call. Was it August the 2nd? Was it January 4th? It's really irrelevant. But in the fullness of time, when all time is complete and stands still, the timing is simply now. For me, that now was wrestling with the call for two years, and God never gave up. We, in the Western tradition, call that prevenient grace. Mm -hmm. And then I said, okay, I'm in. I announced it to my family that I had I had been wrestling with this and answered the call. And aside from everybody falling on the floor laughing because they knew who I was, my dad says, you know, preachers don't make very much money. And I said, I don't guess that's really important to me. And my mother says, you know, you'll never be good enough. I said, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Mom of all people. <laughs> And so, well, that was kind of standard in our family. We were never going to be good enough. That's why we always had to strive to be better and better. And that that was just the timing. So mm. in talking to my friends, I'm tickled that someone got it earlier. I mean, if that pastor hadn't said to me on 64, did you put, you put as much time in, into God as you put into these other things that are important to you? Yeah. I don't know that I'd be here today. But that's irrelevant because it did happen. I did question and— I said, okay, God, I give you I give you my best. God said, I'm taking you at your word. And there have been times that, you know, we always ask the question, could I have given more? Sure. But best is just the, the ground root, the, you know, the ground, the, the basic. Then we get more nearly best or better best best. I don't know how the, all that works. But then we just keep on maturing. And in the Western tradition, that's called sanctification so that we become more mature. We, and we reach a certain level, and we look back and say, man, was I immature when I did those things? But at the time I did those things, I was mature. And so we, be, we become perfect, used to use John Wesley's phrase, we become perfect, and then we are made perfect. And so perfection is simply a state in which we seek intentionally to be faithful and obedient to God's call and claim in our lives. When you were first either, I'm guessing maybe you were an assistant pastor first, or did you— Yes. And then pastoring your own church. Correct. What surprised you about that? Did anything surprise you? Was it different than you expected? Did it require different things of you, or were you well prepared? Wonderful question. I went in and was—I'm a teammate. In college, I played football. I was an offensive lineman. I thought I should have been a quarterback, but they kept saying— I was an offensive lineman. So being an offensive lineman, we, we love anonymity. We don't want our name mentioned. We don't want we don't want it because if, if our name is mentioned, we're making a mistake. Mm. Oh dreaded fifteen yard penalty. And so in that sense I when I prided myself in being a teammate, being a team player. So it just made sense to be an associate, learn the ropes, because my day would come. Now, I was confident that when my day would come, I'd be able to perform at a high level. I was had the privilege of starting as a true sophomore back in the time when freshmen didn't play on the varsity level, and I was ready. I got into the game situation. I said, this is a little bit different than I thought it was going to be. Same with being a pastor. I said, oh, man, I'll be at the top of the charts here in probably 10, 15 years max. Man, are people's emotions fickle. 
And my mother was right. Everyone takes pot shots at you if you're saying something they don't want to hear. Mm. <clears throat> and so in that sense, it was always a learning experience. And in that, as the Apostle Paul says, we just run the course with faith and we run it truthfully, keeping the faith and trusting that our task is to love God and to love neighbor as we love ourselves. And those become the foundation. So with each step, we were privileged to go up the ladder and be successful and be trusted with being able to take the next step, which just meant a larger church. To me, the size of the church was unimportant. The importance was establishing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven through our particular understandings of what that means as Wesleyans. I'm wondering if there are personal rituals that you have that keep you grounded or make you feel that you are in touch with God. Great question. Thank you again. You're full of great questions. (laughs) The grounding is to be forthwith. Here I have the privilege of speaking on your program to thousands, maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, by God's grace, millions of people. We can hope. Yes. And having said this, someone down the road might recognize my name. Or they say, wait a minute, I know that voice from somewhere. Then they say, well, I heard you say this, and I heard you say this. Now they're going to be looking at me with a cursory eye to say, is my behavior matching my words? In the gospel account, Jesus is saying, listen to the Pharisees, listen to the Sadducees, listen to them, but don't behave like they behave. And that's very important. In my athletic career, from the time I was in elementary school to the time I completed my collegiate level, the coaches were always saying, understand, you live in a world in which people know you. You live in the bubble. That's very true in the church. And so how we behave becomes associated with what we have said. Mm. And so if we're talking about, for example, loving the enemy, doing good to those who hate you, praying for those who spitefully use you, and we, we don't do it, then we're talking the talk, but not walking the walk. And both of those are important. To walk the walk, but not talk the talk, means we're not witnessing, we're not with words. And finally, in um, Romans chapter 10, Paul writes, faith comes by hearing. And hearing what? Hearing the word of God. And so it's a both and instead of an either or. So that's how I stay grounded. Obviously, you study scripture in your training, but also in preparing sermons. Correct. Is there a verse, a parable, something that right now is something you really hold on to that's almost, I don't know if you can have a favorite, but is a meaningful passage or story? Absolutely. The Garden of Eden story, the garden stories in Genesis 1 and 2 are very important because they become the lens by which one can understand the kingdom of heaven on earth. Now, one of the things Jesus said many more times than almost anything else that he said, he says, the kingdom of heaven is all about you. What do you mean you can't see it? And so they said, well, are you the Messiah? He said, what do you mean you can't see it? Let's see, the lame walk, the blind see, etc., etc. Aren't these messianic characteristics? What do you mean you can't see it? And it seems as if from the fall that we look at the Garden of Eden, we look at the kingdom of heaven as something beyond us instead of something about us. And so we can be in the, in the man and the woman, we're in the garden, and they listen to the serpent, 
And the serpent asked them to compromise their faith. Gee, how many times do I ask people to compromise their faith? How many times do people ask me to compromise mine? Uh, the woman says, uh, embellishes the truth. Well, we can't eat it or touch it. Oh, my goodness. Why do we need to embellish? I embellish. You embellish. Is that always good? Is that always helpful? Why do we do it? And then the man doesn't offer correction, says, no, wait a minute, sweetheart. The Lord did not say, touch it. He just said, don't eat it. But he didn't offer that correction. And so how many times does something need some clarification that I don't offer? Oh, my goodness. So this describes the nature of original sin. And when we live in that world, we can be right in the middle of the garden and not be in the garden, Mm. if you follow the the thought there. And so Jesus says, when you live within the kingdom of heaven, when when you're purposeful on this, it's not someplace you're getting to go. It's someplace you are. Apostle Paul takes up the argument and says, well, I don't know what it's going to be like on the other side, but it's got to be something like this. Why the heck are we here? And so because we know it here, we will know it there. Because we recognize here, we'll recognize it there. Oh, man. And so in that instance, we're not working for heaven. We're working in heaven. And at this sense, that becomes very important to me. So if I can understand the Genesis stories, then I can understand the gospel stories and the commentary on the gospel stories, which are the epistles, and stay grounded. That's very important. The second verse that's important to me is in the Second Corinthians. And it has to do with we prove that we are children of God when we are. And those are so important because as we look at our responsibilities, we stop looking at your or others' responsibilities. In Sunday school, we're constantly talking about these kinds of things, and the participants start saying them and they. I said, this isn't about them and they. This is about you. What do you think? What do you feel? It's not what they think and what they feel. Oh, Okay, and so they start thinking about that. And so these we prove that we are disciples. We prove that we are apostles. We prove that we are children of God. We prove that we are saints. We prove of our pedigree when we do these certain kinds of things. Those verses are very important. Love the enemy, pray for those, etc., etc., etc. Because it's so easy to not do that. That leads me to the third scripture that grounds me, and that is, it's, it's two references. In the gospel accounts, it's Jesus is approached by a rich young man, and he says, uh, what do I have to do to get into heaven? Jesus says, well, you got to do the commandments. He says, oh, I've been doing that, that forever. So at that point, in the primary story, the young man says, well, who is my neighbor? Got to love God, the heart, so mind, strength, love your neighbor, you love yourself. Well, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And then at the end of that story, he changes the question from who is the neighbor to who was neighborly. So the question is, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, okay, well, who was, who was neighborly? Now the young man has to answer. In this particular story, he answers, well, that's the Samaritan, I suppose, the dreaded Samaritans, who were the offspring of the Assyrian defeat of the northern kingdom about 100 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. But that's beside the point. Jesus then says, okay, go and be neighborly. That's it? Well, you go back to Deuteronomy, specifically chapter 10, and the neighbor is clearly defined as the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. Why the widow? She has no husband, therefore she loses place in the community. Why the orphan? Has no family, has no place in the community. Why the sojourner? (laughs) We're all strangers. Well, that pretty much covers it in, in terms of who is the neighbor and what does it mean to be neighborly. Those three verses form the, the primary 
grounding of my theological systematic in which I ask you and ask others and I ask of myself to hold myself accountable. Hmm. I could not help but notice when I've been in the church when you were preaching and being part of the service that you have a really nice, big, loud singing voice. It is loud. You can feel (laughs) – well, I I think it's also very nice. Well, thank you very much. Music seems to be an important part of your worship and your faith life. That's very true. One of the things that that I love about being raised United Methodist is we love to sing. The Wesley brothers, John and Charles, wrote – hundreds, if not thousands of hymns that are shared in hymn books in many different denominations. What they did, since they were dealing with the poor of England, primarily London, those people couldn't read, but they could certainly sing. And they would adopt tunes that people knew. Some of them were even bar tunes. Oh, my goodness gracious. But they would shift the words into teachings of the faith. My sister grew up as a wonderful musician, Now, she could sing. I'm just loud. She could sing. And she taught me the value and the beauty of music and also the expression of the words in music. In her uh, early married life, she and her husband converted to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And she'd say, look at this. Look at what these words are. I said, I don't even know the melody. She said, it's very important. Look at the words. And and I'd, I'd say, yeah. I said, it's the same thing you do. You're asking people to look at the words when you're when they're singing the the hymns. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Wow! Whether you know the melody or not, what wonderful words! I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I say I've had that experience. And so, in music, particularly in the in the church, whether it's traditional, whether it's hymnody, whether it's contemporary, it's it's what's behind it that becomes very important. People love to sing, even if they can't sing. I'm putting Amazing Grace on your top three hymn list, I think. Are there a couple others that you really love? Oh, absolutely. Oh, 4,000 Tongues to Sing, Great Wesleyan Hymn, Uh, Let Me See, Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go. This coming Sunday is All Saints, All Souls Sunday in our tradition for all the saints Mm. who from their labors rest. Oh, and when the fight is long, and I said to the choir director, we got to sing for all the saints. But the Wesleys taught the Wesleyan systematic through their hymns. And I, as I look at the, the hymn book, you're teaching the fundamentals of the faith through your hymnody. Bravo. That is wonderful. So, yes, music is very important. Oh, and lastly, we have rules for singing. Does your church have rules for singing? Go to the United Methodist Hymn Book and a couple opening pages. We have rules for singing. I may have seen these. Go ahead. Go ahead. And rule four, I think it's rule four, says sing lustily and be of good courage. Do not sing as if you're half dead. (laughs) Remember how you used to sing the songs of Satan? Now sing the songs of God. I like that. Sing lustily and be of good courage. Then the next rule is, but don't overdo it. If you think back, are there moments where either you knew at the moment or as you look back, you see God answering your prayers? And how did you perceive that answer? Thank you. The answer to your question is yes. When I was in high school and I said, oh, man, my cousins are going to get college scholarships. I wonder if I can get one. When the time came and uh, it's called National Signing Day, I went to the designated place Back then, we didn't make a big deal about it like we do now. And I signed that letter of intent. And I said, I am. I no longer had to say, would I? I said, I am. Then it was, 
am I good enough to play? And then I got elevated to the starting lineup, and I am playing. Am I good enough to stay? And I'm staying. And, and so with each experience, the answer to that is finally understood, or it is not. How does God answer prayers? God gives us the, for lack of better words, the feeling and trust feelings. And then the feeling Mm -hmm. goes into the cognitive. How do we reason this? How does this make sense? God, I give you my life. Okay, I take it. What do you want me to do? I'll let you know. Well, (laughs) Well, could you be a little bit more specific? No. Learn how to understand the specifics in the nonspecific. Can you do that? Oh, my goodness gracious. I don't know. So along about that time, someone came in, and I was asking this kind of question, same question you're asking me. And he, he said, okay, let's see. Uh, he said, put your index fingers together. Can you feel them? And I said, yeah, pretty good. He said, okay, now put all your fingers together. Can you feel them simultaneously? Can you feel your feet on the floor? Can you feel your butox in the seat? Can you feel your back against the – how is that possible? He said, the mind is so wonderful that you're not aware of how wonderful it is. Therefore, as you become more aware, you can think about things in a more interesting way. Back in the 60s, when Star Trek was on television and making great hay, they played chess, but not one-dimensional, not two-dimensional, but three-dimensional yep. chess. I have no idea what that means, but I can think three-dimensionally without even knowing that I'm doing it. And in that sense, okay, in this level, that may be the closest to a true spiritual kind of a pure spiritual situation where all of my senses are involved and God is saying, see, 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 I got it. What do you want me to do with it? Why do I have to answer all the questions? Go and do with it. So another great verse is in the call of Abraham, God says, look, I will bless you. If you say yes, you're saying that you will be a blessing. You don't get the blessing if you're not going to be a blessing. So I blessed you. Okay, now go and be a blessing. Don't worry about what they're going to do. Go and be a blessing. Bless them. And then if they turn around and be a blessing, they if they pay it forward, you'll understand my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. And if they don't, you'll understand my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. <laughs> and so in this context, we are constantly answering the questions, how does God speak to me by saying, let me tell you. And it won't probably make a lot of sense, but it will make a lot of sense to me. God is giving us that answer. Just be faithful, be obedient to what God has given you. So the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is is really important to we United Methodists. It's really important to we United Church of Christers. I bet it's really, and I know it's really important to you, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And yet, as we feel this, as we understand it, as we run it into that third level of, of spiritual purity, we still have the responsibility to put it into a cognitive systematic to make sense of it so that we can explain it. A good first answer is I I can't explain the feeling that I had when I was 16 and said, take my heart, Lord. Sung that song probably a hundred times, but I sang it again, and I hummed it again, and I worded the word again, this time with a different level of commitment. Now that I've done that, I take the feeling, and then I start trying to understand that feeling, understanding that only poetry works, not prose, and we begin to make sense. We've been hearing today from the Reverend Keith Couples. Reverend Couples, thank you so much for speaking with me today in good faith. Thank you. You are welcome. It's been a great privilege. 
Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. That's our time for today. And thank you to our guest, Rev. Keith Couples, for generously sharing his stories and his faith. You can find any of our episodes online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith or on our podcast. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Our email, ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Our Twitter, at ingoodfaithbyu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.